Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today on the show, I'm joined by Ari Berman, senior reporter at Mother Jones and author of Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. Ari's writings have appeared in The New York Times and Rolling Stone, and has also been a frequent commentator on MSNBC and NPR. Prior to Mother Jones, he was the political correspondent for The Nation. Ari, welcome to the show. Hey, Reed. Good to see you. Thank you. So we'll get to this as sort of the last thing that we discuss, but if you had told me five years ago that I'd be hosting a podcast and uh, the senior reporter for Mother Jones and or a former reporter for The Nation was going to be a guest, I don't know that I'd have believed you, but circumstances notwithstanding, I'm glad that you can join me today. Yeah, exactly. If you had told me a few years ago that Steve Schmidt and Nicole Wallace and you uh, would be leading the resistance, I, I would have uh, had a hard time imagining it. <laughs> I know. Well, I guess there's a reason why there's a thing called strange bedfellows and all that. So today we're going to be talking about Ron DeSantis and his so-called, quote, anti-riot laws in Florida. And then secondly, just something that we, you and I just touched on, which is the importance of folks who come from different backgrounds and different experiences working together in the context of preserving democracy. But the first thing I want to discuss with you is some work that you all did, and I believe you won an award for regarding Heritage Action and the work that they have done to really lead the charge on these voter restriction bills that have passed all over the country and they're going to come up again here in Texas very soon, probably as soon as next week. Rob, can we play a quick clip of their executive director? Iowa was the first state that we got to work in and we did it quickly and we did it quietly. Honestly, nobody noticed. At the end of the day, the bill that Governor Kemp signed and the Georgia legislature marshaled through had eight key provisions that Heritage recommended. We're working with these state legislators to make sure they have all of the information they need to draft the bills. In some cases, we actually draft them for them, or we have a sentinel on our behalf give them the model legislation. So it has that grassroots, you know, from the bottom up uh, type of vibe. So are you and your colleague, is it Nick Sergi? Yeah, Nick Sergi. Released a report along with the leaked footage of Jessica Anderson, who's the executive director of Heritage Action from a deal they did down in Tucson, Arizona, a couple of months back, where they also spent a fair amount of time bashing the heck out of the Lincoln Project. So funny how all these things come together. But tell the folks listening just about how the process worked and how groups like Heritage Action, especially on the right side of the aisle, have such a significant impact on what we're seeing today. So we obtained this leaked video from a Heritage Action donor meeting in April in Arizona. And Heritage Action, of course, is the sister organization of the Heritage Foundation, which, as you know, is one of the leading right-wing think tanks, has been around since the 70s and 
basically supplied many of the policies that were enacted under presidents like Reagan and Trump. And Heritage Action is essentially their sister organization, which was meant to link up with the Tea Party and be more political because Heritage is this big think tank. Heritage Action is meant to be its political arm. And what they said in this leaked video was that they were writing what they called model legislation to make it harder to vote. And they were giving this model legislation to state legislatures in places like Iowa and Georgia and Texas. And they basically were bragging in the video about how easy it was for them to make it harder to vote and how they either wrote the legislations themselves or they gave it to what they called a sentinel, which is their word for their representatives, so that it had what they called a grassroots from the bottom up type of vibe. So basically they were admitting that they had this voter suppression agenda in Washington that they were exporting to the states. And that's why you had such similar pieces of legislation passing in state after state after state because Heritage was helping to coordinate this whole effort. And basically, it was based on their policies, which they had for a long time to make it harder to vote. But Trump's lies gave them the opening to then sell those policies all across the country to Republicans in key states. So the thing that surprised us, and we're not often surprised when it comes to bad actors on you know what used to be our party, is how quickly they were able to push this stuff out into the environment. And it seemed like January 6th, which we can spend some time on as well, was not the end point of something, but really the impetus for a lot of other things. And how quickly now, just not even six months later, we went from the Capitol being sacked and senators and members of Congress running for their lives to legislators in these states bragging about how they're making it more difficult for people to participate. So do you believe that the Heritage Action folks and folks like them are sitting around ready, waiting with these things, and then they just deployed as soon as they knew that the opening was there? Exactly. I think there was a void for them to fill, and they came in and they filled that void. This started before January 6th. They were pushing this voter suppression agenda before January 6th. Trump's lies gave them a political opening to push these kind of policies, and then that accelerated as a result of the insurrection. And so basically what they're trying to do is to institutionalize the goals of the insurrection. That has become the overriding project of the Republican Party since January 6th. They failed to overturn an election, so now they are changing the rules to try to create the same outcome. It's a lot easier to rig an election if you don't have to overturn it after the fact. You just make it harder for people to vote, and then you don't have to have an insurrection because you've laid the groundwork to benefit your party. So they say in the video, Jessica Anderson says in the video, we have a fire in our bellies to right the wrongs of November. What were the wrongs of November? If it was the most secure election in American history, what was the wrongs of November? Clearly, the wrongs of November to them was Donald Trump losing the election and Republicans failing to steal the election for Donald Trump. And that's the kind of thing they want to change going forward. You've written a book on voting rights, protecting them, restoring them. As someone who has spent your career looking at this and sort of examining the right, do you think that there is such a thing as a modern conservative form of governance and it just metastasized? Or do you think that there was always this sort of authoritarian-ish line running through it? And some of us who, you know, worked for what we consider to be establishment Republicans were either, you know, didn't pay attention, were naive or blind to it. What's the history to you on this? I think there was always an authoritarian tendency within the Republican Party. I think if you look, for example, at the debates over civil rights in the Republican Party in the 50s and 60s, you had pro-civil rights Republicans 
And then you had quite influential people like National Review basically arguing that the Voting Rights Act would ruin America and that blacks weren't fit to govern themselves. So it was okay for the South to maintain white minority rule. And that was a tension within the Republican Party for a very long time. And the Republican Party, by and large, was able to marginalize those voices or those people that held those opinions, like William F. Buckley, were able to either keep them at bay or reform themselves or focus on other things. But I do think there's always been this tension within the Republican Party. What's different now compared to back then is that I think that Ronald Reagan looked at America and said, how can I win over as many Americans as possible? And he did. I mean, look at the majorities that Ronald Reagan won. And I didn't agree with him politically, but you have to say he had a majority strategy for America. He wanted to win as many votes as possible. Donald Trump didn't even want to win as many votes. I mean, his whole strategy was, how can I lose the popular vote, but win the Electoral College? So even then he was basically saying, I'm only going to appeal to a minority of Americans. Then if that didn't work, he's saying, let me figure out how to throw out enough votes to reinstall myself as president. That's a dramatically different strategy than someone who's trying to win 40 states, right? Or someone who wants to believe that they are a popularly elected president compared to someone who just doesn't even care if he gets more votes and then is just openly in favor of throwing them out when he doesn't get them. I think I talked about with Rick on one episode last week or the week before, the stated political strategy of the Trump campaign in 2020 was that they could not win a high turnout election, that they needed to drive down turnout as much as they could, because without that, there was no possible way for them to have those narrow margins like they saw in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania in 2016. Now, all that being said, it was a high turnout election, but it was still marginal in a lot of ways, right? It was 80,000 votes in a few states here and there go the other way. And Donald Trump might still be sitting in the White House. So I think that's the other part, too. When Republicans say in Georgia do this, they're not trying to keep every African-American from voting. They just need to keep enough African-Americans from voting. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Donald Trump told the Republican secretary of state in Georgia to find 11,780 votes, right? He didn't tell him to find 200,000 votes. He only wanted to be able to find enough votes to nullify Joe Biden's victory. And there's two ways to look at this debate about voting. One is to say, why are we making it harder to vote for no good reason? To me, that's the number one argument against these restrictions, that there is no reason to do it. And we're rolling back voting access for no good reason. But then there's people that say, well, it's not going to have any impact, so don't worry about it. And I'm saying in Georgia, they changed the law in 16 different ways to try to make it harder to vote for disproportionately democratically in constituencies. You don't believe that Georgia Republicans think they can find 10,000 votes through doing this? I mean, that's not a lot of votes to change if you look at the affected populations. I mean, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of people that might not have the right ID or use drop boxes in the past or don't know the new rules for mail voting, things like that. And I absolutely believe that voters will figure out a way to adapt to some of these changes. But at the same time, 10,000 votes is exactly the kind of number that changes to voting laws would tend to impact, right? Like changing to voting laws aren't going to flip a million votes, most likely, but they very well can flip 10,000, 20,000 votes. And that's why they're pushing them so hard in places like Georgia, Arizona, Wisconsin, that were so heavily contested in 2020. Well, and as you know as well, too, our voter turnout percentages aren't great to begin with certainly in local elections, legislative elections, even midterm elections compared to presidential years, oftentimes don't display a lot of interest on the part of voters. And so I've always said any amount of friction, however small, could convince someone that trying to figure out how to make it work versus not doing it is just one more thing 
that feeds into the everything feels weird, maybe it really is rigged, or maybe my vote doesn't matter. Exactly. And that cynicism was one of the things that a lot of groups were able to overcome in 2020, trying to convince people that your vote mattered and your vote would be counted was a very important message in 2020 that I think more people emphasize than in past elections. And we had the highest turnout in 120 years in 2020, which is incredible. But even still, only 66% of Americans turned out, right? So you still had, even with all of this interest, a third of Americans not participating, and that number is going to go down significantly to the point where there's half of Americans are going to vote in the midterms, even though what happens in the midterms is going to determine a lot of what's going to happen in 2024. Because if some of these states that have split government, like Michigan and Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, go all Republican, that gives them a huge opportunity to do whatever they want in the run up to 2024. At the same time, if there's different governor in a place like Georgia or a different governor than in a place like Arizona, that acts as a potential check on what Trump might want to do down the line. So I think you're right that one vote can be incredibly important, particularly in, in lower turn elections. There's also another whole aspect of this, which is, of course, the fact that they're also making it easier in many cases to overturn elections themselves, which is the ultimate form of voter suppression. Because if you can't find those 10,000 votes through changing the voting laws, you just say, we're not going to certify the result of the election. And therefore, you nullify all of the votes for your opponent. That's what Trump wanted them to do in 2020. Republicans failed to do it because it's so radical to overturn the will of the voters. But that's on the table now in a way that I don't think it was in 2020. And this is where, for many years, as you know, the judiciary was such a motivating factor for conservative and Republican voters. You know, we have to get our judges. And now you have a situation where, you know, and I hope it doesn't come to this, but nothing will surprise me at this point, which is you could have an otherwise perfectly run election not come out for Republicans. Republicans sue, get a conservative jurist or a conservative court who say, well, you know, I don't know. It sure looks fishy to me. Right. And now you have a politicized judiciary. And at that point, all bets are off. And I mean, we even saw this. You wrote an article not too long ago about the fact that the Supreme Court in 2013 gutted, you know, the Voting Rights Act of 1965. They have gone out of their way not to participate in redistricting suits when they come up to the court and say it's really up to the states to figure this stuff out. So it seems like on the one hand, it's negligence by omission. We're not going to take this up because we don't want to fool with the states. And some of it's by commission. Well, we've reached a point in our history, admittedly eight years ago, where this isn't, you know, preclearance and all these other things that were necessary aren't necessary anymore. But now what we see are bad actors taking advantage of those things. They filled the vacuum, as you said, with this stuff that just makes it more and more difficult. Yeah, I mean, I think that's been a really disturbing trend is how, in a lot of ways, Republican-appointed judges have made it easier for the Republican Party to become an anti-democratic party. That if you look at the gutting of the Voting Rights Act, the fact that partisan gerrymandering can't even be reviewed by the federal courts, I would argue that that opened up possibilities for the anti-democratic actors in the Republican Party that weren't there before. Because if you were in Georgia or Texas or Alabama and you wanted to pass a law that was going to disenfranchise black voters, you had to get that cleared with the federal government. And you knew that most likely the federal government wasn't going to go for that unless someone like Jeff Sessions was attorney general. And I mean, now you know that you don't have to get it approved. And so, yes, the Justice Department just sued Georgia, but that's going to be a very, very hard lawsuit for them to win compared to Georgia having to submit that change to the federal government and say the burden is on us 
to prove that it's not discriminatory. Now the burden's on the federal government and those facing discrimination to prove that it's discriminatory. So the, the burden of proof has shifted. And, and basically, uh, that makes it uh, very easy uh, for Republicans to implement these kind of measures. And if they get sued by the Justice Department, they don't even care because they just feel like it's going to motivate their base. I mean, Brian Kemp was saying he was happy they were sued because it's going to help him win a primary. So the political dynamics have totally changed here. What I would say is, I think there was a distinction in 2020 between making it harder to vote and overturning an election. A lot of people were okay with one thing, but not another. You saw the courts push back over and over against these kind of efforts that just flat out overturn the election. I worry that in the minds of a lot of Republican officials, those two things are blending together now, that overturning an election is now part of making it harder to vote. And that, to me, is a very dangerous escalation, because when you write a bill like the Georgia bill and you say, OK, we're going to do all these things to make it harder to vote, that then we're also going to strip the secretary of state as a member of the state election board. And we're also going to allow the state election board to take over county election boards. And we're also going to dissolve county election boards to make sure that they're all Republican. There's no Democrats on that anymore. That starts looking like the fallback plan, that if the suppression doesn't work, we have this authority to not actually count votes anymore. And to me, we can disagree about voter ID laws, or we can disagree about how much time someone should have to vote early, right? Or we should disagree about the rules for mail balloting. Like there are good faith things to disagree on. But the question is, do we agree that at the end of the day, if you lose an election, you should just be able to override the will of the voters? To me, that shouldn't even be up for debate. And now it's on the table. And, and that's the most distressing part of all of these anti-democratic actions right now. So Stuart Stevens, one of our senior advisors here at the Lincoln Project, did a race in the Congo many years ago. And he was talking to one of the political leaders over there and he said, you know, the thing about democracy that we're not used to is that somebody has to be willing to lose. What we see now is that the fear is, is that Republicans will not be willing to lose. But let me ask you this. This is a binary system. There's only going to be a Republican or a Democrat occasionally, a, you know, an independent sneaks in somewhere for some reason, but usually in a place like Vermont or, you know, Maine, right? It's not a normal thing. What happens if a Republican wins somewhere and the Democrats there are like, nope, not going to let it happen? Could it bleed across the aisle? It could bleed across the aisle rhetorically, but I don't think it's bled across the aisle in terms of laws themselves. For example, in New York, they're not rewriting the law to say we're going to throw out Republican votes if a Republican somehow manages to win here. These provisions to try to overturn elections are only being instituted in red states. And Donald Trump was the only candidate that tried to overturn an election, right? There were challenges when George W. Bush became president. I mean, people were not happy about how that played out, but there wasn't an insurrection to try to prevent votes from counting. Today, I saw someone was saying, well, when the Democrat in Iowa who lost by six votes asked for a recount, she was just doing what Trump was doing. Like, no, if Trump had lost by six votes, I don't think anyone would have begrudged him for filing lawsuits about it. But when it's clear that you've lost by a significant number of votes, and by the way, Republicans in every state are the ones who are signing off on the election. I mean, that's what was so crazy here. Can you think back to a situation where in like Arizona, you had the Republican governor, the Republican attorney general, the Republican legislature, and the Republican head of the Supreme Court all signed off on the legitimacy of the election there. And Trump was still trying to overturn it. That would have been completely inconceivable for eight, 12 years ago. Well, and just last week, I think the heads of both the Michigan State Senate and the Michigan State House both said, we're not doing any ballot ought here. We're not going to do that. 
And Trump went crazy. He went on the attack and said, you're a bunch of rhinos. You're not in line with me. You're not a real Republican. You're not a real conservative. Stop the steal. This whole thing was rigged. And I would venture to say that you're going to see a lot of Republicans in primaries next year who will either be full-throated in their belief that 2020 was stolen from Donald Trump or will walk as close to that line as they possibly can that gives them an escape hatch to probably avoid his ire when it comes time for small-dollar donors and activists and party officials to start making their choice about who they're going to choose. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt about it that the center of gravity in the Republican Party has moved more and more towards the big lie and more and more towards even accommodating the insurrectionists and the small number of people that have stood up have either been purged from leadership positions or are facing primary challengers or have just quit altogether because their lives were made such hell by the insurrectionists and their supporters. And to me, that is a really, really troubling development, one that there's no obvious answer to. I mean, we learned even this week that apparently, you know, Mitch McConnell knew there was no fraud, but he refused to say it because he didn't want to piss off Trump. And it's just amazing that people are un are unwilling to say things that are just obviously true. And even in Michigan, where the Republican senators debunked all of the bogus lies about the election, they still were saying we need to change our election system in all of these ways. And the question is, why can't the message just be, we had the highest turnout in 120 years. We had the most secure elections in our history. So there was no trade-off between access and security, because that was always the argument, that when you increase access, there's a trade-off with security. And Trump's administration said, no, it was the most secure election ever. So there was no trade-off between access and security. Why can't the message just be, we lost the presidency barely, but we have a 50-50 Senate. We did a lot better in the House. We won all these state legislative races. Why can't the message basically be, we should institutionalize everything that happened in 2020 because it was good for voters, but also it was good for us as well. I mean, you don't hear anyone basically making that argument. Like you don't hear anyone in the Republican Party basically saying high turnout is a good thing and we should institutionalize that in future elections. And that to me is the really worrisome part of this. I mean, I think part of that at its core is that there is no ideological or belief structure that serves as a fulcrum around which that party spins. It's just about power and money for a lot of them. And McConnell's a perfect example. He's that unicorn breed, a fellow traveler and useful idiot. He will do whatever it is he needs to do to maintain his own authority. And if he has to push back on Trump when he feels like it's necessary, he'll do that. And when he needs to go silent on Trump, he'll do that too. Because to him, it's not about one policy or another policy or even the good of the country. It's about making sure that he gets to stay in his fancy office and get all the trappings and you know have people come to him as supplicants. And that's antithetical, I think, to what most of us want as a country. Yeah, I mean, at some point, the pursuit of power just became overriding of everything else. And then it was, once you get power, how can you entrench your power more and more? So how can you gerrymander as effectively as possible so Democrats can never win an election? How can you pass voter suppression laws to make it harder for Democratic constituencies to vote? How can you deregulate money in politics so that unlimited secret donors can back up your efforts? I mean, and the question is, is there any ideology here at the end of the day other than keeping power for power's sake? You look at a guy like Mitch McConnell and other than, you know, appointing some judges or maybe giving a tax cut for the rich, it doesn't seem like there's anything that he cares about other than maintaining power for the sake of maintaining power. And again, that starts to become the stuff of authoritarianism too, right? Because at the end of the day, 
authoritarians just want to stay in power. They're not trying to push some big policy outcome. They just want to stay in there. And that starts to look at the project, not just of Trump, but the project of Mitch McConnell, and a lot of other people that are viewed as having a different brand of politics than Trump. But I would argue a lot more synergy is there than people often realize. Speaking of people who are in it for the power and very little else, back in April, when a lot of this other stuff was passing, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis passed what was called anti-riot legislation. And he did a press conference. He had a county sheriff there, I think the Polk County Sheriff there. And he basically said, don't come down here. Don't march. If you march and you break a window, felony, 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 seems to me to be an extremely chilling effect on the kind of demonstrations that we saw last year. You know, don't come to the streets. Don't utilize your First Amendment right to free assembly. What is it about this kind of stuff, aside from, you know, from my perspective, it being patently unconstitutional? Why this and why now? Is it just because of what they saw last summer and they don't want the unrest in the streets? Well, I think it's just another way that authoritarianism is manifesting itself, which is to limit people's right to free speech and people's right to free assembly. And to me, it was really chilling that Florida did this because Florida has a law on the books, basically that in many ways disenfranchises people with past felony convictions. Remember, in 2018, Florida passed this big expansion of voting rights to people with past felony convictions. And then they said, well, no, you actually have to pay all fines, fees, and restitution before you can vote, which was basically a poll tax that disenfranchised 700,000 voters. So now you're basically saying to somebody, you're going to be arrested for peaceful protest. Oh, and by the way, we can disenfranchise you for life also if you can't pay off all these fines, fees, and restitution. So it really kind of seemed like a double whammy to me. And, and I, I see this as all sort of connected, like the quote-unquote anti-riot laws, the new restrictions on voting, the banning of teaching anything relating to racism. Like to me, it all is kind of the same in that essentially you're just, you're just legislating based on white grievance at the end of the day. And and are you doing it from a policy perspective or is this basically the new Southern strategy where this is the way you kind of win elections by talking about things like critical race theory or anti-riot laws? I mean, to me, it seems like this is something of the same kind of strategy we saw deployed uh, in the 60s and 70s by people that didn't really like the civil rights movement and didn't want it to have a big impact on society. Let me say this. So I was in California last week and I have family in Orange County, California, and Ron DeSantis was out there last week claiming it's his reelection bid. But let's be clear, it's his presidential bid. And as I understand it, when he got to Orange County, he came in hot and said, I just got done signing the transgender ban bill. And someone that I know out there who's an older person, very conservative, but very practical, said, doesn't Florida have bigger issues than that? Like, isn't there something else you got to worry about? The person who was there and was telling me the story went all in for Trump last year, but never really liked Trump, asked DeSantis why they couldn't get rid of Trump. And DeSantis gave this very mealy mouthed answer. And then when he was talking about the transgender thing, again, this person was like, I don't I don't get it. And so is there a chance, albeit a small one, that the things you're talking about, which are not only white grievance, but also culture war issues, right? It's all performative. That's all it is. Do you think there's any backlash to that for real people who, A, are going to go out and see their families this summer or their friends, they're going to maybe travel, go to national parks or whatever, be like, this is what you guys are doing all day? I think it's possible. I mean, listen, 
buildings are collapsing in Florida. I mean, the, the seas are rising in Florida. I mean, there's so many issues there right now. And, and this is what they're focused on. Remember, this is the same governor that signed his voting bill, rolling back vote by mail as a Fox and Friends exclusive, which was another ridiculous political stunt. He was trying to out Kemp, Brian Kemp, by doing something like that. And I think in many ways, DeSantis is probably the future of the Republican Party and that he's the smoother, more by the book Trump. I think that's probably the future that we're heading to within the Republican Party, which is not a repudiation of Trump. But if you want to get rid of him, you replace him with someone like DeSantis that does a lot of the performative stuff, but it's like authoritarianism light as opposed to outright authoritarianism. To me, that's what I see in someone like DeSantis. Yeah, no, Rick calls it running Trumpism through the car wash. No less odious outcomes. It's just more seductive some ways. I think probably the outcomes would be greater for their voters because someone like DeSantis would actually know how to get stuff done and wouldn't get in his own way. And that was always my argument that if Mike Pence had been president, they would have repealed Obamacare. They would have absolutely figured out how to do it in a way that a lot of stuff didn't happen under Trump. I mean, it probably would have been a more conservative agenda, but with less authoritarianism attached to it, as opposed to more authoritarianism and a lot of tough talk about. But what did Trump actually do at the end of the day in terms of getting things accomplished. He didn't actually really pass very much, even with Republican majorities, because they didn't ever really have a strategy to actually do anything. Well, he just wasn't interested in, to your point about authoritarians, he didn't care about passing any legislation. That's not what he thought he was there for. He thought he was there to sit in the Oval Office and meet with people, you know, feel like he was a little king, put the silly airplane model on the table, probably conduct his personal business from inside the Oval Office and go do rallies, right? That's what he saw as his role. And then when COVID popped up, rather than understanding what he needed to do, he said, uh, it's China's fault. It's the Democrats' fault. Like a miracle, it'll go away. Yeah. But the whole DeSantis strategy is fascinating because, you know, I paid a lot of attention when they passed this bill that made mail voting harder. And Republicans were very confused <laughs> as to what they were doing here because it was the Republican Party that was the one that pushed for mail voting in Florida. As you know, I mean, that was a big thing in, in 2000. I mean, in, in 2000, it was Republicans in Florida that gave absentee ballot request forms to all their voters because they said they wanted you to be able to vote lazy. I mean, that was literally what they were calling it. And then in 2002, it was Republicans that changed the law to give Florida no excuse absentee voting. And so there was one election in 2020 where they lost mail voting to the Democrats and they lost pretty badly. But that was only because Trump told people not to vote by mail, not because Republicans in Florida can't win under mail voting, because look how well they've done for the past two decades when Florida had liberal mail voting laws. I mean, Republicans have dominated every aspect of Florida politics since then. So it's this very short sighted, reactive thing, because if you talk to you know, thoughtful Republican strategists, they would say when Trump's not here, we want to use mail voting again because our voters are older and more rural and they rely on mail voting more than Democratic voters. But then they decided to change all the rules for mail voting just because Trump complained about it and more Democrats used it in one election. And then DeSantis goes and has this press conference at Fox and Friends and, and shuts the media out. And, and basically, that's been the entire agenda for the past few months there. But it's a microcosm into the broader Republican agenda writ large. Well, and I mean, I can tell you someone who ran a lot of campaigns with, you know, permanent absentee ballots. It is, if you are a political technician, a great way to identify your voters, tell them do this, 
get them to do it and then be able to take them off the list of people you have to continue contacting so that your number of votes that you need is going down and your ability to be more accurate on who you're targeting is going up while the money you need to spend on it is going down. So it, it was a very efficient way to do it. And I know the Republicans in the Trump campaign had sent their best mail ballot technicians into Pennsylvania and their whole strategy was torn asunder because Trump was just all over it. Yeah, I mean, he absolutely undercut his own voters. And so Republicans, they didn't do any kind of autopsy. But if they did do an autopsy, one of the lessons would have been these voting laws can benefit us and it's not in our interest to undercut them. And who knows if the election would have turned out differently if they had urged more of their people to use these kind of methods in Georgia, in Pennsylvania. I think it's good for political campaigns. I also just think it's good for democracy because if more and more people vote early, you're taking so much stress off the system on election day, and you're also giving people a lot more time to fix problems. So if you have a mail ballot, you can spend a lot more time trying to figure out how your vote's going to be counted than otherwise. And if you vote early, let's say you have a problem with early voting on day one of early voting, you can come back on day two or day three or day 14, right? Compared to you don't know what's going to go on on election day, right? Like it could be fine or you could be in Georgia and they could have five hour lines and then it becomes really problematic. So I think having all of those options to vote in 2020, I think was one reason why turnout went up because people had so many different options to vote that, that in some places they didn't have before. Well, let me just stick to DeSantis for one last sec before we move on to is that what DeSantis represents is not just their sort of authoritarianism through the car wash, but like him and Hawley and Cruz and so many of these people, they're all born of Ivy League educations, the most expensive, most elite education and connections that the world has to offer. And yet somehow they want to pretend like they're the quote unquote common man. This week, J.D. Vance is going to launch his Senate campaign in Ohio solely on the back of a book that, frankly, I was hornswoggled into loving when I read it, Hillbilly Elegy. And now he's got a $93 million investment fund put, you know, with some of the biggest funders in Silicon Valley who've helped him out. And, you know, he said the role of the conservative movement in the country is to defeat those people who are opposed to the, quote, American nation state. And if you're not going to reduce their power, then you must be destroyed. That's the kind of stuff where the just the cynical elite nature of this stuff is so odious in and of itself because they all know better, but they've chosen to take the darker path. You couldn't get any more inside the beltway than Ted Cruz or Josh Hawley or J.D. Vance in terms of their backgrounds. And then they've rebranded themselves as the fighter for the working man. And this is something that dates back a long time. And if you read, you know, what's the matter with Kansas? I mean, Tom Frank was talking about that back then, which is how is it that a party that basically stands for the rich and the powerful is getting so much support from the working class, or at least the white working class, and how are Democrats who theoretically are supposed to fight for the little guy, how have they become the party of the rich and the elites? And to some extent, that's still true in a lot of different ways. And so that just remains a major problem. But I, I feel vindicated for always hating Hillbilly Elegy. So I feel like I was, a, <laughs> I was ahead of the curve on that book. So in 2018, we saw that in the midterm elections, Donald Trump lost the House, lost a lot of House seats. And, you know, there's some theory that a lot of that had to do with health care. We tend to believe that it was more just a reaction to Trump himself, that holy shit, like this guy really is, you know, a game show host. 
in 2020, this very unique coalition of people like us and people like you, people like Stacey Abrams, moderate Democrats, independents came together for this time to get Joe Biden over the hump. But it didn't have any purchase down ballot at all. Very little. I mean, maybe in Georgia, but for the most part, it didn't. So how do you see that reforming this year? And what do you think folks of otherwise, I don't want to call it opposing views, because I'm not sure that's the right way to put it, but disparate starting points. How do we get folks like you and me who can have this conversation where you and I could probably talk for another three hours about this stuff and have wholehearted agreement on democracy and that without democracy, the rest of the arguments we might want to have don't matter. How do we get folks to start to see it like that as opposed to, well, you did this once and I did this once and therefore we can never be friends or we can never be allies in this time? Democracy has to be the central unifying principle here. It's very healthy to have debates about lots of different policies. And we're going to have debates about healthcare and taxes and regulation, all of those things. And, and that's healthy to democracy. But we shouldn't be fighting over democracy itself. And to me, that's what's changed in the last decade compared to decades before this, that Walter Mondale and Ronald Reagan weren't debating about whether America would still become a democracy. So to me, that is the most chilling part of it, that essentially now to be a Republican and to be in a Senate Republican, you have to essentially be anti-democratic or want to be authoritarian in, in some way. And that to me is the most chilling part of it. And so I think that we can say that it's fine to disagree on issues. Not even everyone has to like Joe Biden, but we need a broad consensus in favor of democracy in this country. And that's something that could unite AOC and Liz Cheney. Like they wouldn't agree on anything if you put them in a room together, but they would agree that we should have free and fair elections and we shouldn't try to overturn them and incite insurrections when one party loses. And that's what got Liz Cheney pushed out of the Republican Party. It was all about the fact that she stood for democracy at a time when the Republican Party is embracing authoritarianism. And that's what pushed her out. And so I think that's where there could be a broader coalition. And even on the For the People Act, the Democrats sweeping democracy reform bill. One of the things that really frustrated me about the debate was, you know, you had Republicans saying this would be a takeover of state elections. And well, if you looked at a lot of the policies that were in the For the People Act, there are policies that were already adopted very successfully in Republican controlled states. Georgia has automatic voter registration. Texas has two weeks of early voting. Florida has no excuse absentee voting. Iowa has Election Day registration. Those policies have worked really well in all of those states, and Republicans have won under those rules in all of those states. So there was a conservative case to be made here. Now, you could argue conservatives don't want a 50-state fits-all strategy. I mean, there's an argument to be made against that. But you couldn't argue against the policies from a conservative or Republican perspective because those are policies that have been adopted in Republican states and that Republicans have done very well under. So to me, that's the missing part here. And I think that's what's different now than if this had been taking place two decades ago, which would have been way more people in the Republican Party would have stood up for democracy two decades ago compared to the number of people that are standing up today. Well, and I mean, none of the stuff, even if you thought there was a particular provision that was maybe unnecessary in the context of today, no one was calling for non-citizens to vote. No one's saying you can be 16 and vote. But this stuff seems to me to be 
if you are going to be a country of self-determination, and that self-determination starts with each and every eligible voter, then you should always be willing to expand the franchise. But again, once you've decided you no longer care about the marketplace of ideas, that I'm not going to make a better argument for why I can govern better, but I just want to be in charge and I want you to help me get there, then I guess they're not going to be for anything that's going to make it easier for folks to vote. There's a big difference between Ronald Reagan winning 48 or 49 states a few decades ago and Donald Trump just openly admitting that he could never win a popular vote anymore. I mean, once you've decided that you're not going to try to have a popular mandate, then that just opens the door up to more and more authoritarian actions. And so that's to me where we need a course correction. And I do think that if our institutions were structured differently, like I believe that if you knew at the end of the day, you had to win more votes to be elected president, that would force different outcomes to knowing that if I just get my voters out in my states, then I'll be okay. We should oppose voter suppression. We should oppose efforts to make it hard to vote, but we should also fix structures that allow for these anti-democratic outcomes. And Things like the Electoral College to me are just ticking time bombs for democracy. And I would like to see a conservative case made for why overturning the will of the people or not even reflecting the will of the people makes sense. I don't really see an argument for a system that allows someone who gets fewer votes to hold power. It just seems to me antithetical to being in a democracy. Sure. And, you know, I have not spent as much time maybe as I could or should on the Electoral College piece. But if you do go back to it, it was designed at a time to prevent the wacky outcome. And it was designed at a time when you had to be a white male property owner to be an elector. It was never exactly set up to be the, quote, will of the people. That's always my issue a little bit when you constantly invoke people like Madison or whoever to justify a political system today. I mean, the founding fathers were brilliant, but they also wanted power concentrated in the hands of white male property owners like themselves. And so it's hard to really make an originalist case for America today when it's so dramatically different. And also, they were worried about things like the insurrection. I mean, like in a way, that's what they were worried about. They were worried about crazy mobs doing incredibly anti-democratic things and overturning American elections and American government writ large. I mean, that was a major concern of theirs back then. And you could say, well, they designed a system that would have checks on that. But I don't think they thought, okay, someone's just going to routinely win the popular vote but lose the Electoral College, or someone's going to be able to get millions of more votes in the Senate, but then the other party's just going to block anything from happening because they control a block of 41 senators. Like Things like that <laughs> didn't even occur to Madison. And I mean, it, there's these tensions, right? Because America's on the one hand becoming a lot more democratic, but it's also becoming a lot more undemocratic at the same time. And that tension is still there with us right now. Well, Ari, I think we're going to leave it there for today. Before I let you go, though, where can our listeners find you on social media? They can find me on Twitter at Ari Berman, and they can um, read my reporting at MotherJones.com. And as always, gang, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. And until the next time, we'll see you soon. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our efforts to join our mailing list and subscribe to our newsletter, visit lincolnproject.us. 
Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode. Thank you.